Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. Today I am joined by two very special guests. Many of you have already guessed who they are when we left that hint last week. Uh, I'm joined by Chris and Eric from the Retrograde Amnesia podcast. Uh, They, actually, before we turned our format over into what we're doing now, we're already doing long-form, comprehensive podcasts on JRPGs. The first, if I'm not mistaken, guys, was Xenogears, right? Xenogears was your first series. That's right, it was. And it started as a as, as a joke, right, Eric? Yeah, it was a joke on Twitter. It wouldn't be funny if we did a 55-episode podcast on Xenogears. Yeah, we were... It was the summer that, that Evangelion came to Netflix and everybody was releasing these these long-form discussions of, of Evangelion because there was a lot of people being exposed to it for the first time. And we were joking back and forth on Twitter, what if we did that with Xenogears? And, you know, it's good to have a friend like Eric because he was like, yeah, I'll absolutely do it. And we live five minutes away, so it was it was perfect. So we did it, and it was so much fun. A nice little community developed around us, around our Patreon. So shout out to the Real Net on that. And uh, we, we kept going. So then we did our second season, covered Chrono Cross, which is wrapping up right now at 40 episodes. And then we're moving on to Final Fantasy VIII. So it's been a good ride. Final Fantasy VIII, that's awesome. Yes. Which you have some experience with, I know. Right, so our first series was Final Fantasy VIII. Now we've, we've moved on to Xenogears, and you guys are about to start Final Fantasy VIII. So, for anybody who enjoyed the FF8 series, you're going to have a lot more uh, if you go and check out Retrograde Amnesia. And if you get to the end of this podcast, you're like, I, I need more Xenogears analysis. Again, go jump over to Retrograde Amnesia. They've got the whole thing covered for you. So, where can they find you guys at? Uh, our audio is on YouTube, so you, you can find us on YouTube, but uh, we are an audio only podcast so you can find us any anywhere you find podcast apple spotify wherever so and, we're out there and i have to mention that the name retrograde amnesia for a podcast covering jrpgs is like the most perfect name ever for a podcast it's brilliant eric gets full credit he Thank came <laughs> yeah, he, he came up with a full list of of, of titles and uh so i, I rejected uh xeno beers xeno beers and uh <laughs> My favorite one that I wanted to select, but we couldn't, it just was, was, La can't believe we're doing this, which <laughs> those have played, those have played Zeno Gears, we'll get that reference. Uh, oh, and, and, and honestly, I still can't believe we're doing this. It's, it's, been, it's been fun to, to uh, you know, develop a little community and, and, and get into these JRPGs. It's so much fun. It's a yeah. lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Too. Yeah. Yeah, ton of work. Um, speaking of, uh, well, first of all, you guys upload weekly, right? Is it always on Mondays? Yeah, Mondays, every Monday. Every Monday, okay. We haven't missed a Monday in a hundred and some odd weeks, so <sighs> therefore. Wow. Yeah, it's great. Wow. Well, we record well in advance. We're already 20 episodes deep into Final Fantasy VIII, and we have not released a single episode yet. Oh, there so. you go. See, you, uh, guys, you guys are smart. You do it the way that it, <laughs> you do it the way you should do it. I'm yeah. re- recording this on Sunday, and it's going to go up in like a couple days from now, so I'm always like behind the ball, like trying to edit and get it done in time. Yes, these bless guys, you for that. These guys know what they're doing. They have like, production under control. Okay, so speaking of a lot of work, <laughs> uh, I, I just, I'm totally disheveled. I look like freaking Charlie in that meme from uh, It's Always Sunny where he's, he's got like all the connections on the wall between, between the things, man. all the research and just like freaking out and going crazy. Uh, I just, oh my goodness, I've been trying so hard to like get a handle and remember everything, looking at perfect works and re- researching all kinds of things. Um, Xenogears is so, so deep in terms of its, its use of symbolism and, and reference to, to other things. And so like, uh, 
as we as we have done in in our last two podcasts on uh, Final Fantasy VIII and Near, we want this to be kind of like a like a book club, right? So we want people to play along with us the relevant section that we're going to cover for that week, and we don't want to spoil too much the sections coming up later in the game, but. You also want to be able to dig into the meat of what you're seeing, especially in this opening cutscene. So we're going to try to navigate that as best as we can. Um, it, and I just want to say this to, to people who are very sensitive to spoilers. This is the internet. There are people who are like, I don't, don't tell me anything. If you're, if you're really, really sensitive to spoilers, just don't watch any videos online regarding the thing. <laughs> right? Like, just stay away from it. Um, we're going to try... I think for the most part what we'll be talking about will be something you'll get if you've played the game before. If not, it'll sound like nonsense or it'll be like, okay, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with anything? That's the way that I see it. But I think it's really important to, to look at some of these things and to make sense of them now um, rather than just waiting, 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 and waiting far down the line. And the fact that I have these guys on here who have already done their deep dive into Xenogears, I want to get some of their... Uh, insight on some of this stuff too. So we are going to dive a lot into some of the details that we're seeing here. Um, but I don't think we will spoil too much for what's coming up. So, um, oh, one thing I wanted to ask you guys before we actually get started on, on what we played this week. Um, I don't know if you had time to take a look at the, the first episode of our podcast on Dev History. But I wanted to see if you had done that. If not, it's fine. But if you had done that, if there was anything that, that you guys know about the dev history, any interesting tidbits that I failed to mention that you might want to bring up. I think I have listened to it. We both have. You have listened yes. to it, right? I don't think you guys missed anything. I think... Um, no, I don't think you guys missed anything. There were some things that I thought I was learning for the first time, but then when I went and li listened to the, our stuff that we covered, we actually had, had covered it as well. It just had, had been a while. But you, you no, just forget you these things so easily. There's yeah. so much. Yeah, and I, I thought it was especially interesting, too, that you guys were talking a little bit about the the localization struggles yeah. that, uh, that that Xenogears had. And Kaysen pointed out the, I don't remember what it's called, but it's the manner in which uh, a Japanese person confirms they understand what they are what they are hearing. Aizuchi, the, yeah. Aizuchi, yes. And that was I didn't really I I didn't really understand that concept. I watched a lot of the anime, and now now things are starting to make sense on why why so many things are repeated. But we absolutely did read Faye as like a local dumb boy who <laughs> didn't understand what was going on. And yeah. now that you guys have pointed that out, I was like, wow, that it, that makes a lot of sense because you know, like for as much. For, for as, as many problems as the, the localization of this game has, like there's a lot of dialogue in there that's interesting and you know kind of cheeky at times, and and so we had always just read Faye as like this guy who didn't understand what was going on, which kind of does make sense given his you know True. retrograde amnesia, no pun intended. But, True. Yes. Uh, so yeah. Um. Yeah. And uh, a, a couple other things that I ended up reading, um, not in regards to Aizuchi, but just in regards to the development of Xenogears that uh, I read after having recorded that podcast. So we were talking about some of the similarities or some of the concepts that bled over into FF7, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Tetsuya Nomura was actually a team member on Xenogears early on in its development. That was not something that I knew. Um, he talks about this uh, in some interviews when he was talking about some of the designs he did for Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and the fact that he's worked with uh, Tetsuya Takashi in the past. So, uh, Nomura, who was 
kind of a key developer on like developing the concept of Final Fantasy VII along with Sakaguchi and others. Um, had originally been working on Xenogears, he was a part of that team first, and then he got moved over to Final Fantasy VII to do the character design and, and some of the story concepts. So yeah. you could see maybe where some of, some of those got carried over there. You can feel the crossover at times. Yes. And, uh, another one that bounced between team was Masato Kato, who worked mm-hmm. on, on both games. And I don't know if this, is, if this has been proven, but he's all, like Kato is often credited for some of the sillier or more lighthearted things that, right. that come out in, in Xenogears. There's a, I think there's an interview in the 20th anniversary concert pamphlet with where uh, one of the developers, not re- don't remember who it was, but was talking about how uh, Takahashi's worldview often clashed with Kato's worldview because Takahashi uh. is very, you know, grim and and uh, nihilistic at times, whereas Kato, you know, is is is, is Kato if you're familiar with, with his stuff. So, <laughs> right. uh, so I think he's he's generally credited as as the one that that inserted the Xenogears reference into the Final Fantasy VII scene. What was that scene? The Xenogears scene in Final Fantasy VII. Oh, oh, Where it's when clouds. it's when clouds when clouds passed out. Yeah, he's like a, he's in his like whatever you call it vegetable state. Yeah, and he and he, he says something Zeno gears, but it's spelled with yeah. a Z or something, right? Yeah, yeah it, I think it references a million shards of light or yeah, shades, kind of broken mirror, broken allegory. mirror. Yeah, which is a, a kind of a thematic thing that 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 is found throughout this game. There are precious. There's like a restriction on access to Japanese developers through Japanese PR, and the only time we learn tidbits, like the only reason why we know disc two is the way it is is because of a question that jason schreier snuck in to takahashi mm-hmm. in a xenoblade interview like if that hadn't happened we would never have that information right yeah i, I remember i had just released my xenogears review and had done like tons of research and it was like a few months later that interview came out where he finally mm-hmm. talked about it. i was like no it's like the yeah. worst timing ever <laughs> yeah yeah the the other recent thing to come out was the the issue about uh, Xenogears 2 doesn't exist because of Final Fantasy Spirits Within. I think that came out of something uh, uh, within the past year or so. Yep. Uh, when it comes to budget and and every every now and then those little those little tidbits sneak out. And the the fun thing about people who love Xenogears is that everybody just clenches onto those new nuggets of information every time it comes out, so you mm. can't miss it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and another thing uh, that I read about too that I thought was interesting was that the original pitch for FF7, Tetsuya Takahashi's first pitch. Um, more or less had like gears swapped out for summon monsters. Yep. And and watching kind of the opening of Xenogears this time, but like knowing that and being like, oh, I wonder how this would have played out if this was like a summoned beast instead of a gear, kind of like gave me an interesting, uh, you know, different kind of perspective to how the story could have gone and how it might have been a Final Fantasy if it had gone that direction. It would still work with, with, with Beast. It, completely that that reminds me of there was uh in some interview with Soria Saga she said that as soon as Z- Xenogears team became the Xenogears team and it wasn't going to be a final part of a final fantasy that Takahashi started showing up to his office with just all of his his robot his robots and his toys or Gundams or whatever he had um and then he was able to to project that towards Xenogears which gives it a like that makes Xenogears unique in in this era because there weren't a lot of at least that came stateside a lot of mecha RPGs. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so that was just a couple of extra things I wanted to add on to development that I had read about. Um, so, <laughs> I, 
I, I mentioned in, in the first episode that I had, you know, these ideas of laying groundwork on all these different, uh, whether it's Gnosticism or Neo-Freudian and Freudian psychoanalysis, like all these different things we could lay a foundation of understanding about. But I was like, nah, that, that would be too long and too boring before we actually get into the game. But this week, I, I, I actually have decided that one thing that I think can really help in like understanding, I don't know, I guess maybe the purpose of some of like the religious references that you're going to see and like really, un, really like wrapping your head around it in context of like what it means to the game. Um, it would be good to at least start with a very quick summary or foundation of Gnosticism because I don't think very many people are familiar mm -hmm. uh, with it. So um, I'm just going to kind of go through some notes that I took in, in the research that I did this week. And if you guys know anything too, feel free to cut in uh, at any time. Okay, so quick addendum here. I want to precurse what I'm about to say in the podcast by just stating up front, I'm by no means an expert in this stuff. I researched and learned a lot of this a few years ago when I made my review for Xenogears, and now I'm kind of refreshing and expounding on what I had done at that time. But I do not have a comprehensive knowledge of this, and even if I did, I could not even hope it would be futile to think that I could, you know, provide that for the audience. So hopefully this sort of basic foundational kind of explanation will spark an interest in you and uh, maybe you the viewer can go and and you know do some more research on your own if that's something that interests you that being said gnosticism was not like a unified ideology it wasn't there was no institution right and there were so many different sects different schools of thought um, but there is no orthodoxy. There is no like central unified doctrine or dogma for Gnosticism. And the base word there, gnosis, is Greek for knowledge. And in the context of Gnosticism, it, they encouraged individuals to seek for personal secret knowledge about things that are spiritual rather than relying on a system of belief. So this resulted in many different sects of Gnosticism, many different interpretations of some of the kind of central ideas that they shared. But when it comes to expounding on our understanding of Xenogears, I think there's probably two sects in particular that would be the most useful in understanding what Takahashi is referencing with his mythology. Uh, those two sects would be Sethianism and Valentinianism. So what I had time for this week was to read a Sethian text called the Apocryphon of John, which explains the cosmology or the creation myth of Gnosticism within the Sethian sect, right? Now, Valentinianism, as far as I understand it, follows a very similar model but some of the details might be different. So the explanation that I'm about to give in the video is mostly based on what I read in the Apocryphon of John. So for those of you who have studied Valentinian Gnosticism, uh, the terms might not align or be exactly the same, 
But I think that the basic model, the basic idea is. And one of the major differences between Valentinian Gnosticism and Sethian Gnosticism, from what I understand at least, is the level of contempt for the material universe. I think within Sethianism, it's really viewed as evil, right? Material things are evil and corrupted. Whereas in Valentinianism, it's not so much evil as, as it is just like inferior to things that are spiritual. Um, and that will play some role in how I kind of interpret some of the stuff happening in the first scene. Um, my interpretation leans a little Valentinian on that front in terms of like, is the material world evil necessarily, right? Or is it just inferior, you know, is it just corrupted and like incomplete and imperfect, right? I think that that is probably more the leaning that Xenogears takes, uh, rather than like claiming it's like evil, right? Anyways, I just kind of want to make that point. I'm continuing to learn and continuing to read even after having recorded this episode and I'm learning more all the time. And so in this book club format that we've created for this, um, my understanding of a lot of this is going to continue to grow over time. It's not complete right now. It's not comprehensive right now. I don't know if it'll ever be comprehensive, but I'm going to strive for that. <laughs> and uh, any sources or any help that you want to offer in the comments would be greatly appreciated. Another thing I want to point out is that a lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about here with sort of like Gnostic cosmology, there is no perfect analogy right? No, like perfect fit between some of the names here and then some of the names you're going to see in the game. And that's of course on purpose. Like Takahashi wasn't trying to just copy Gnostic cosmology and just use that as his mythology over here. He's using pieces of it. And then of course, pieces of other references, whether that's childhood's end or whether that's Freudian uh, psychoanalysis, or he's using pieces and bits from a lot of different things to sort of merge together into a brand new mythology that he's creating. So there are no like perfect parallels, but having an, a basic understanding of what's going on over here, stuff that he was reading at the time, certainly will sort of open your mind to, okay, like this is possibly, you know, it'll help your interpretation. It'll give you a clearer view of what he was thinking at the time, you know? And so, you know, again, like names like Sophia, for instance, um, are not going to perfectly mirror Sophia from Gnostic cosmology. Uh, Sophia in the game is not like you know, a direct parallel, a, a perfect analogy for that, but um, it's still useful uh, in sort of like understanding again, possibly uh, Takahashi's intention. In a lot of ways, there's, there's kind of a table flip or, or like a total reinterpretation of like the creation myth or, or like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So I want to just quickly, quickly go through this so that everybody can be on that same page as you're playing through it. And I think it will really help clear some things up that might be confusing otherwise. Um, on top of this, uh, a lot of what we know about Gnostics is found in polemics 
<laughs> written by um, Orthodox Christian leaders who vilified Gnostics and, and, you know, for heresy and all these things. And so you're surely not going to get a very unbiased view of, uh, of what the Gnostics believed by reading that stuff. However, um, there was a discovery made, I think, in like the 1940s in Egypt um, that had like a, a series, like a codec, like a series of writings from the Gnostics. Uh, the Nag Hammadi Library is, is what it's called. And there are a few um, books and gospels and things in there that have uh, been integral to kind of understanding um, some of what uh, these people believed. So God in the Old Testament, according to Gnostics, was not like the benevolent uh, creator, right? Um, it was actually a corrupt or a jealous God who hid knowledge or gnosis from Adam and Eve in the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? So they've kind of flipped that. And it was, it was Jesus who was sent to like free them, to, to give them the knowledge, <laughs> give them gnosis, right? By giving them the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you can see how that became very controversial. Yeah, <laughs> for Orthodox Christians, where they're basically flipping the role of of uh, Lucifer of Satan in the Garden of Eden to be Jesus. Yeah, uh, in a in a lot of the Gnostic systems that I've read about, the the God, the Demiurge, is what you're describing right now, and the, yeah. and the Demiurge, this the, this God was the often prescribed as like the creator of the material world, right? And the material world in many Gnostic tradition is is, is inherently even, excuse me, inherently evil. And the, the goal of, of Gnosticism in a lot of cases is to kind of ascend beyond the Demiurge and find the true God. And, and that is kind of where, that, that kind of concept is how Takahashi and Saga kind of built this sci-fi system. They built it around kind of these ideas. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to, again, I'm, I'm trying to be as brief as I can because I know that this might seem boring to some people. But it is very important, I think. Yeah. Um, but I'm just going to quickly go over like the, the cosmology or the creation myth, uh, mm -hmm. according to Gnostics. Um, so essentially, like you said, the material universe, anything material is kind of corrupt or like inherently evil. Um, but spiritual things are like pure and perfect, right? So like the, the benevolent God figure to Gnostics is, is the monad. Uh, anyone who's a fan of the Xenoblade Chronicles games will notice the reference there, the monado being like the sword that Shulk uses, right? Mm. Uh, but the monad is like the pure, perfect, uh, higher dimensional spiritual being, right? Um, and it was from his thought, or an, an emanation from him, was the first aeon known as Barbalo, right? Um, if, for those of you who have read Tolkien, this is, this is actually kind of similar um, to that mythology where you have Eru Uluvatar, who's like the one, right? And from his thought come the Valar, right? The, the different kind of like demigods below him. Um, it, it's a similar, it, it's described similarly, like, like from the thought, or there's an emanation from the thought of the one that comes Barbalo, the, the first Aeon. And this Barbalo is described generally in, in the feminine form, but it's actually also described with uh, uh, various terms of androgyny. So it's kind of like a father-mother figure, this, this Barbalo, right? But it's in these exchanges between the, momad, the monad and Barbalo 
that all the other aeons come into being. Okay? And it's one of these lesser aeons named Sophia, who will be a key character later in Xenogears. Um, Sophia decides to try, without the participation or the consent of the monad, to involve herself in the creative process a little bit on her own. And it is where this is where the first archon, the chief archon, Yaltabalth, uh, the demiurge, comes from, right? So Yaltabalth, Yaltabalth <laughs> it's a hard name to pronounce, is material, right? A, a material being that has some of the light of the monad, which came from Sophia, uh, as part of its essence, but uh, it is inherently a corrupted being because it is material, physical, right? Um, and so, ashamed of what she's done, she tries to conceal Yaldabaoth from the other Aeons. And even though he's imperfect, he's still very powerful. And powerful enough to, and this is key for me to understanding, or at least an interpretation that I have for the first scene of Xenogears, Yaldabaoth tries to mimic the creative process. And this is where the material universe comes from. It's where uh, the other Archons come from. Um, and essentially even the first man. Um, the, the spirit of the monad kind of like descended upon the archons and they didn't really understand it, but they got this image and they tried to like copy the image of the monad and that was essentially what became Adam, the first man. But it wasn't until Sophia tricks Yalabalth into like blowing the light or the essence inside of him that was a remnant of the higher dimension of Sophia and the monad, blowing that essence into Adam that Adam actually animates and becomes alive. And so once uh, he realizes, Yaldabaoth realizes that uh, Adam is now a superior being because Adam has that light of the monad in him, he gets very jealous and decides to lock or imprison Adam in the Garden of Eden. So it's not a paradise created, you know, by a benevolent god, but by a jealous god to imprison uh, Adam away and seals knowledge or gnosis in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then the monad sends a savior figure, Jesus, to give that knowledge to Adam and Eve so that they can be as gods, right? Yes, and that's where the reinterpretation of the creation story comes from, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. So, um, with that sort of like background, uh, in place, um, I think that it's it's a good time to kind of jump into this and uh, and dig into the very first cutscene of the game. Whew, press start. It, press start. <laughs> Begin when new you, game. When, when you first played this, <laughs> when you first played this, and you first pressed start, I don't know how long ago it was, but do you remember? Were you prepared for what you were about to see? Not at all. Because I wasn't. I remember being absolutely shocked because. Uh, both Eric and I both went to Catholic school, so we were playing this as like Catholic teenagers. Oh, wow, okay. We pressed start and were immediately hit with a familiar Bible verse, something that we had seen in, you know, in, in religion class. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's like, whoa, okay, so this is what you're all about, Xenogears. Okay, I'm with you, you know? Before, before, we, before we get into the quote, I, I didn't know that you guys grew up in Catholic school. Um, what was this like? Playing a game like, in terms of like, it was, did you feel conflicted or like any kind of sense of controversy surrounding the religious content in this game? Uh, having that background when you played this for the first time. I had kind of <clears throat> lost the faith at this point. Oh, okay. 
And when you're an edgy 15-year-old, 16-year-old, <laughs> killing yeah. God seems like the coolest possible thing. Yeah, I, I think... So... Yeah, I think we're, we're kind of in the same boat where, like, you know, we were 15, 16 years old, and sort of any any piece of media that seems to be contrary towards the the institution that you're brought up in, it's like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so I did not feel any... any but I did kind of feel my homework paying off, recognizing terms, recognizing yeah. the quote we're about to talk about, and sure. it made me slightly pay more attention. I think they called it Hebrew Scriptures was our Old Testament class, mm. and I remember information I learned in that being applicable to what I was playing in Xenogears. Yeah. yeah, and if anything, this and and you know a lot of other media at the time like Evangelion made me more skeptical of the institution of of Catholicism wow. as I was as as I because I I didn't know any other. Any other world? I mean, we we learned about other religions in, in, in Catholic school, but I didn't really understand any other, you know, conflicting worldviews. Because I think I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but Xenogears is pretty skeptical of some of the institutions. So sure. Uh, so it was right up my alley. Like I I, I love this kind of stuff when I when I was that age. So were you already kind of there too, where you were having some doubts or becoming skeptical, or was this maybe a catalyst for that in some ways? Um, I don't know if catalyst. I don't know if a hundred percent catalyst, but it certainly was was an imp- input into that process. I think. Did Did your mothers know you were playing a game where you kill God? <laughs> uh, good question. I don't think so. I mean, they were cool with Mortal Kombat, so I think at that okay. point it was just well, you know right. whatever. Oh, at least he's reading, you know. Yeah, and I had been into <laughs> I had been into RPGs, JRPGs specifically, since I was I was eight. I played Final Fantasy one when I was eight years old. So okay. like. You know, my parents were already familiar with the kind of things that, that I was into, and this was just another one of those things that I, you know, went in the basement and played. Okay. A joke so. I make with Chris a lot is all I wanted was the game with the big robot on the cover. <laughs> I didn't know what what I was really in for. Yeah, yeah. We it got did a lot look, more than that. The, the cover art was pretty sweet. I mean, that was like a big reason why uh, my brother ended up getting Final Fantasy VII. It was so important, just that huge like sword. It just looked yeah. so yeah. cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So yes. The first thing you see on the screen is a quote, or it's a passage from the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 22, verse 13, which reads, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So um, this is pretty basic stuff, but Alpha is obviously the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the 24th and last letter of the Greek alphabet. So it's just a different way of saying first and last, right? The beginning mm-hmm. and the end. Um, so... What do you guys make of that being the very first thing that you see in Xenogears? What, what do you think is the importance of that being the very first thing that they show? Independent of it being a, a biblical verse, it's just a cool line anyway. Like, even if you didn't know the context for that, you're like, wow, that is, that's, that, that, that's kind of cool. But I, this, this line, along with a lot of other things in the intro and in the early parts of the game, is kind of... I love it because... It's important, but as a, as a first-time player, you you literally cannot interpret who the speaker is here until you've played the entire game. Right. Like this is this is setting up something that you or giving you a question that you can't answer for sixty-five more hours. Right. And that's kind of bold, right? Yeah. It also introduces kind of a meta game you can play when you're critically observing Xenogears, which is is this quote from theology uh, or a, a philosophical concept something that is supposed to be taken seriously and imagined and considered in the game, or is it just a cool reference they included because the Jewish calendar months sound awesome? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was something that I was kind of struggling with when I was doing my uh, like research on Nier. 
was that like some of the naming conventions were done with purpose, right? And it was like, there's like kind of a deep like reason for it that's like tied thematically to the story. And there are others where it's just like, he just liked fairy tales. And so like these people are named after Pinocchio for some reason. <laughs> so like yeah. trying to differentiate even in Xenogears, like why they named things, what they named them can be a yeah, bit it, of a, a tough thing to figure out. Yeah, it's like he li- he thinks robots are cool. He also thinks Western religions are cool. Is he putting them in there for a larger purpose, or is he putting the- these things in there because, like you said, are th- they're they're cool sounding? Yeah, exactly. Um, so the very first scene, um, there are a lot of anime cutscenes in this game. Um, uh, you know, the reason that they did this was probably for. Um, well, I don't know actually. It, it's a good question whether it was budget constraints. Like rather than making all of the the like the CG cutscenes or all the cutscenes in like CG or in game. Um, well, I, I do remember reading that Tetsuya Takahashi didn't like how Final Fantasy VII did cutscenes, where like they did their FMV sequences that were like you know like mind blowing and cool, but like the game <laughs> kind of like didn't really look yeah. like that, right? Um, yeah. And, but they, they ended up doing these anime uh, cutscenes in, in a few places. But it feels to me like this first one is like by far the most polished, like the most well-produced yeah. of all of them. It's where all the money went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this game's pr- the, the anime in this game in general is pretty front-loaded. Like by the yeah. time we get done with this section of the game, we've seen, I don't know, maybe almost 50% of it. Oh, that's actually a good point. Because yeah. there's kind of like the very, very end of the game but I'm trying to remember where else other than like this first couple scenes. It's kind of, yeah, just a couple scattered throughout there. We've got a couple more in the next couple of sections and then there is one or two in uh, in, in disc two and then the ending, which I think is the longest one. There's yeah. some genuine CG a couple of times too. Yeah, yeah, they do some That's, CG with, the, yeah. with some robot stuff, yeah. I remember that now, yeah. So anyways, uh, this first one is really well done though. I mean like on top of like just the quality of the animation itself like even the voice acting is quite good um whereas it's it's sketchier <laughs> later on yeah um, the lip sync gets worse and worse as we progress to the game. <laughs> exactly um but it's it's a really really well constructed opening scene um yep so we're going to dive into the details of this but basically what happens is we see this massive colony ship which is called the eldridge as it's traveling through space and this high-level emergency protocol is initiated. And then we, we kind of cut to the bridge as operators are analyzing the situation and they're reporting to the captain. And mm-hmm. amidst this frenzy of digital charts and diagrams and techno babble, uh, you know, we can kind of see the ship systems are being methodically taken over. And despite yep. the crew's attempts to stop that, there's not really anything they can do. It's, it's a foregone conclusion. The, so, uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. The uh, the techno battle is tremendous, by yes. the way. Like, in, in, and if you sit down and look at like one of the first lines that the one of the operators mentions is Omega One restarted, mm-hmm. Alpha One genome reconstructed, confirming exon replacement. Yes. And we just heard about Alpha and Omega. Correct. And, and the Alpha One and the Omega One here correspond to things that are in the game uh, that we can't really discuss at this point without without spoilers. And even the exon replacement is referenced in a conversation much later in the game like towards the end of disc one they talk about the exxon replacement and what that is so very early on they're they're seeding so many different things about that uh to kind of as this i always call it a sci-fi gnostic system that's being created here like this intro all the things that are happening 
are the birth of this Gnostic system that the the game's events are, are, are built around. And it's terrific, and it's, and it's bold to put all this right in the front of the game because no one's going to remember any of this until the second time they play, play through the game. But one thing I always thought was interesting, and I don't know if this was by design or if it's just a, a nature of games at the time, but when you go to the title screen of Xenogears, and if you don't press start or you don't continue your save and you let it idle, this sort of attract mode where uh, of this game is just replays this intro. So if you're playing this game for the first time and you may watch it two or three times or maybe even more because you didn't press start quick enough and you're like, oh yeah, the intro, I'm going to watch that again. It was cool. And so it's it's always there in your mind if you if you are playing this game where you're not using safe states and you're you're loading it up every time. So you can see it constantly and kind of be reminded of these things throughout the throughout the course of the game. So it's not necessarily all the all the knowledge is not always going to be buried there. Yeah. And I, I, it's a very good point is that like the techno babble sounds very fancy and and perhaps like oh maybe this is just mumbo jumbo. Mm-hmm. But it's not like it's actually all very meaningful. Like everything they're saying has like a practical meaning within uh, the universe and within the context of the scene. Um, and and yeah, the Alpha and Omega that is referenced like right away, like the the first thing that the operators are talking about. And we'll go over these lines line by line in a second and kind of break them down. Um, but it's, it's, it's important to mention that, like, it sounds, it can be kind of overwhelming as, like, a first-time player. Like, whoa, all this, all this terminology, I don't understand it. What's going on? Um, it does all have meaning. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not just a bunch of nonsense that they're saying. Uh, upon realizing the hopelessness of the situation, the captain calls for the ship to be evacuated. But the weapon systems are activated by whatever it is that is taking over the ship and any shuttle that attempts to leave is shot down. Um, and so the captain is watching this from the bridge in horror, and he, he realizes the only choice here is to self-destruct, right? To stop this thing. Um, and in doing so, uh, the ship crash lands on a nearby planet, and from the wreckage, we see this purple-haired woman emerging and watching the sunrise. Now, um, Kaysen couldn't be here this week. Uh, by the way, um, yeah, he, he had a, his wife had a baby. Um, the baby is healthy and happy and everything went well. We're very, very excited and happy for him. Um, Congrats. Congrat- awesome. Congratulations to Kaysen. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm a dad again for the third time, so I'm the father of three human beings. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, third one doesn't change your life upside down quite as much as the first one, but he's a cute kid and he's a good guy. <clears throat> He's quiet. He didn't cry. He was born, and he didn't cry. And then they gave him his first shot. He didn't cry. It was, like, kind of concerning, I guess. But he's fine. I mean, he's fine. He's he's at my house. He seems to be doing well. So, yeah, excited about him. He's doing great. Uh, he'll, he'll be back next week. But um, he was going – he hasn't played the game before. This is going to be very, very fun, I feel like, to watch him sort of, like, speculate or, or maybe guess at where, where the story is going. Um, I always like to, because I, I replay games a lot. I don't know about you guys. I, I'm sure that you do, considering you have a podcast where you do just that. But one thing I like to do is to have somebody who hasn't played a game that I've played many, many times before, just kind of like watch them, observe them. Because I, I feel like it's the closest thing you can get to re-experiencing that game for the first time. 
And um, so I'm going to interject. He, he recorded a little separate video, and I will interject sort of like his uh, thoughts. Uh, I'll kind of cut them into the podcast here. The spaceship is shaped like a, a phallus. It is a male phallic symbol. Now, generally speaking, I would be a little more hesitant to read into a phallic symbol because sometimes that's just aerodynamics or that's just kind of the way a fuselage makes sense with the cockpit and just like an airplane. Like it just, uh, for whatever reason, it's, it's, the designs are what they are and they don't necessarily mean, you know, to be in Friday, implying like Freudian phallic symbology within their frameworks. However, it's present. And when somebody tells you specifically, Hey, Freud influenced this game. I, I give myself permission to read into that. So some of it is, I, I'm getting a lot of Tower of Babel or Babel type of um, like imagery here because this is this phallic symbol is massive. <laughs> this is a huge spaceship here, and it is. Um, I believe it does resemble a tower of sorts and a tower that comes crashing down because it challenged. Something it shouldn't have challenged, I suppose, uh, might be the best way of saying that. It challenged. It challenges uh, God in some ways. So, um, this is a Tower of Babel, and if you understand uh, about the Tower of Babel situation, um, it is a massive structure that is bound to fail. Um, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later. But the ship represents, in my opinion, the phallic symbol, meaning the masculine, the the super, super severe masculine, and the Tower of Babel. Um, so the beginning of this whole uh, cutscene, and it is very cool, it has some text that reads on screen. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So as the, as the trailer starts, you see this incredibly large phallus symbol. Um, and the phallus symbol seems to have something inside of it that says danger. There's a warning within this symbol. It seems as though something has crept into the ship. And this item <clears throat> happens to be an embryo. Now, when you have a phallic symbol that is all about the masculine, but you insert something that is unnatural into the masculine, such as the gestation of a fetus or an embryo, I suppose might be the better word. Um, you are, you are, well, the yin and yang symbol come to mind. Um, yin and yang, um, symbolizing masculine, feminine, also things like, you know, nature, um, on the feminine side, like water or, um, uh, chaos, the, that kind of stuff. And that comes, you know, from the water more or less, I suppose within nature, you've got the ocean, but the ocean is treacherous and, um, and, uh, birth happens within water. Water is one of the, uh, you know, signs of life. And that is typically uh, feminine, uh, where within the masculine, you have, um, other, other things amongst which is something like order, generally speaking. Um, and like <clears throat> power, authority, things like that. That is typically represented within the masculine. But if you can visualize the yin and yang in your mind, uh, you see that there's a dot within each side, right? There is a little bit of the other side within the midst of one side. So the masculine has a little bit of the feminine inside of it, right? Now, that... Um, is how things can live in balance, right? You don't have, it's not masculine versus feminine. It's masculine 
with some femininity inside of it, with the feminine, with some masculinity inside of it, right? Now, there's a bit of a threat because uh, if the feminine grows too great, it will overtake the masculine. And if the masculine grows too great, it'll overtake the feminine within those little circles. So it's, But it's important to understand that within the masculine, in this framework, there is the symbol of the feminine, which is the gestation of an embryo. That is actually unnatural, um, and that shouldn't, it technically shouldn't be there, right? This is an unnatural relationship between these two things. And just like with the Tower of Babel situation, we're going to see that as you worketh that which is unnatural, more or less, in uh, a way, um, God executes his punishment upon you. I want to kind of go through uh, the, the, the dialogue here line by line. And, and sort of make sense of what's going on here. Because I feel on top of the fact that Xenogears is a high context game in the sense that like uh, it's very referential to other things. And if you don't know what those other things are, you're probably going to be pretty lost. On top of that, it's not super well translated. And this opening scene, I think, is a really great example of how maybe like a subpar translation can really like be confusing um, just in the way the sentences are constructed and can make it hard to follow. So, of course, we have um, I, uh, I am Alpha and Omega beginning and the first and the last. And then th we have a computer that reports this is a level one emergency. And then you have an operator with uh, orange hair. She says, Omega one restarted. Alpha one genome restructured confirming exon replacement. And this is what you were talking about here just a second ago. Um, we don't want to spoil the game too much by, by directly revealing what these things are. But the way that some of these lines are delivered, it, it kind of sounds like she's talking to Alpha One and Omega One. Like she's communicating with like different sectors of the ship. Alpha One to raise your central. Access confirmed. That's the way I always read it as well. And that's not what's actually happening, <laughs> right? No, Be she's she's describing the attacker. Yes. So, okay. So let's get let's let's move forward a little bit here. Um, we have a green-haired operator who comes on and says, "Base code 85 million, 100 million. Its speed is overwhelming. Alpha One to Raziel Central. Access confirmed." Again, when, when I'm hearing it as Alpha One, it's like. I'm talking to you now, Alpha One. Alpha One to Raziel Central. Maybe they are Alpha One reporting to... Anyways, yeah. we're going to break this down in a second. But I want to look at the term Raziel, right? We actually see Raziel Central. There's a shot of it. It's the, I'm going to put it on screen here. It's this shot of this kind of giant uh, space here. And there's these two kind of glowing orange-yellow tablets um, kind of floating there in the center. Um, and this is going to be important for later in the game, but Raziel, um, in like Jewish mystical traditions, is an angel, uh, a really important angel, who's like associated with like the deeper or the secret things of God. And Raziel actually um, kind of explained or, or, or divulged like the deeper meanings of the Torah to Adam and Moses uh, in, you know, the Jewish mystical tradition. So, again, I, I want to kind of put that into your consciousness as a thing. Like, Raziel is 
a reference to this, and, and the, what Raziel did in the reference was like explain the deeper meanings of things, the, the, the deeper meanings of God, uh, revealed those things to men. Um, and so, uh, but in, in this context, Raziel is essentially the, the, the computer system of the, of the Eldridge that like controls the whole thing. Um, and whatever it is that is attacking the ship, or that is hacking the ship, is making its way towards Raziel Central, which is like the, the ship's central computer, which would give it control over the whole thing. And at, at this point, have we seen on screen the, the image of the attacker? Not yet. Well, okay. uh, well unless you're talking about the... Um, I'm talking about the, the biological yes, kind of turtle the, the embryo, fetus thing. The embryo. Yeah. Do you want to yeah. talk about that real quick? Yeah, I was... It, just wanted to point out that that thing is on the screen, and um, when it mentions the Exxon replacement, that's a reference to this thing somehow rewriting its own DNA or rewriting some sort of DNA. And the, I believe, and I don't know if there's a way to confirm this, but I believe when the operator is is referencing the the increase of the base code, whatever that is, that that she's implying the existence of this thing is is growing and spreading throughout the ship. Right. And so that's what they're saying is um, uh, contamination, or let's see, because she talks about a contamination spreading widely. That's coming up here in a second. Um, right, right. But, but, but the and base code... So we code, can assume... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. We can, uh, we can assume that that thing on screen, that biological, bio-organic looking thing, is the, is the source of this, because that is one of the first things that were shown, right. in addition to all the technobabble and the hexagons on the screen and whatnot. Right. Um, so uh, it's heading to Raziel Central. Access confirmed. Uh, initializing fake net disconnected. Uh, I-, I want you guys to kind of talk about fake net for a second because this is a whole thing on your podcast. Oh right? yeah, that's a. <laughs> uh, do you want me to drop the fake net sound into the into the mix? Yeah, I can yeah. Do let's that do it. Let's do it. All right, let's initialize the fake net. I'm gonna press the button. Initializing fake net. All right, there you go. Fantastic. So uh, we yeah. found that to be like the most absurd term in the intro. <laughs> So it kind of became um, a running joke on our show where I would just play the sound effect randomly. Then we eventually progressed to the point where we were missing stuff. And during the editing phase, I would dub in a text-to-speech voice, which became the fake net. Yeah. But Chris went hard on the intro movie, as you're seeing here, and actually learned what the term fake net is intended to be. Yeah. Like, it's not technobabble. It actually has a specific purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Shout out to Eric for for coming up with the idea for the fake net. Um, it's real. Uh, he's, I mean, throughout it, it 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 came with us to Chrono Cross. It's coming with us to Final Fantasy VIII. And there's a whole arc. Like occasionally, it's goes to the future and fights robots and comes back and takes vacations. It's a whole, it's a whole bit, and it's 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 tremendous. This but, is not in Xenogears. This is in our podcast. Yes, right, yes, right, yes. Right. <laughs> this fake net and the the I looked up the term fake net, and it's I think it's just a reference to a. Well, like an anti like an antivirus uh, thing, yeah, like, like an a, antivirus out the system. Yeah, where it's like it's trying to capture a, a a hacking attempt or a virus in a fake network and then close it off and isolate it. Mm. Um, so it seems like that's what they're trying to do in this case, where they're trying to to isolate this digital attack or whatever uh, into a fake net and then um, you know and, and and then delete it. But obviously that doesn't work. That's why they scream disconnected right after that. So so it's it's more or less an attempt to like take the 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 virus right and yeah. like put it into a fake net where they can quarantine it 
Yes. And then from and then there, destroy it, right? Yes. Makes this perfect sense. This whole sequence looks like well-trained people going through protocols until they run out of answers. Right. Exactly. For the most part. So then uh, they activate the emergency shelter and then, no, oh, denied, right? Contamination is spreading widely. And then at that point, they don't know what else to do, right? They've gone through all their protocols. So she turns back to the captain, like, Captain, what, what do we do? <laughs> What's happening? And then the captain, who is, I love the captain's design, by the way. I love that he's like a, a very traditional looking ship's captain in this very like futuristic world. He's got like this perfect beard and like hat and everything. He looks like he's from the Titanic or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, his uh, it, perfect works uh, says that he was. Th- this character's name is like, uh, I think uh, Captain Inaway or something of that nature. Yeah, and I think it's a reference to an actual Japanese naval ship captain. Oh, nice. Okay. So they were basically basing that design off of the real person, then, or something similar. Yeah, at least the name. Yeah. The name, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then he says, uh, "Cut off the cables manually." Uh, she says, "Roger." Activating self-destruct bolts. And then you see a shot, it kind of cuts to, uh, you can see where these cables are like running on the side walls of the ship and they blow out one of these connecting cables, but like it doesn't stop it, like the connection is maintained. So no good, nothing happened. Yeah, um, there's like energies, like they're essentially like they're, they're, they're destroying the pipe so that the, the energy, whatever this is, this contamination can't go any further, but it just, it just shoots on through. So this is something kind of otherworldly that is able to transmit between these cables not not just you know a a a regular digital signal right apparently is the implication here now here's where i'm going to kind of circle back to the translation problem and why the first several times i watched the scene i was listening to it or reading it i guess incorrectly um so she says omega one with a bit of a pause so that would that would in uh, i guess indicate like a like a comma like omega one they're attacking Omega-1, they are attacking. We can't stop them. 98% of our weapons have been taken over. This is why I always felt like she was speaking to (laughs) Omega-1. Like Omega-1 is some other sector of the ship. She's reporting to somewhere else. Like they're they're contacting each other, like over the comms. Um, I think, and Richard Honeywood talks about like the problems with this mistranslation in, in an interview that he did. Um, he didn't actually translate this portion. It was done by a different person who ended up leaving the team really early uh, due to the possible controversial content in it, right? And just like the, the, the difficulty, like the, the sheer like scope of it. Um, and like the technicality of the script and how just difficult it is to translate. Um, but essentially this, the fact that they pluralize what it is that's attacking the ship is incorrect. And we talked about last week and we have in the past too, how high context a language Japanese is, right? So it makes sense that if he's just translating this scene, but he has not seen the rest of the script, he does not know where the story's going, he's not, you know, he's just getting started, so he doesn't understand like what the thing is, just the same as a person playing the game for the first time. Sometimes it's not clear in Japanese whether we're talking about a plural or a singular noun. <laughs> um, and so you have to have the full context in order to really get it. And so it was translated as they are attacking. And, and you see this a couple different times. The, the, the captain also refers to it as they. But it isn't a they. It's not plural. It's a singular thing. It's it, right? It is it, attacking. It makes it feel 
using the word, the term they makes it feel like there's an opposing force attacking right. the ship. That's the way I always read it before we started really digging into this. Uh, but in reality, it is a it is a singular being that is doing this work. Exactly. And beyond that, it's the omega. Even if they, if you replace it with it, right? And you have omega one comma, it is attacking. That would be closer. But I still think is is missing a little bit of what is actually being said. Yes, she's not Omega-1 com- is doing the damage. It, she should say Omega-1 is attacking. Mm-hmm. Not Omega-1, it is attacking, but Omega-1 is attacking. We can't stop it. If, if it had been translated that way, it would have been crystal clear what's happening here. <laughs> um, yep. So it's, it's Omega-1 and Alpha-1 that are the enemy attacking the ship. It's not some other force, a plural... Um, or, and and she's, she's not communicating to other parts of the ship as Omega-1 and Alpha-1. It is Omega-1 in particular that is attacking, that is hacking the ship. So, now that we have that context and we go back to the first thing that we see in the game, I am Alpha and Omega, right? And, and that's, a, that's a passage from Scripture. That's God describing himself, right? Alpha and Omega, God is attacking this ship. Now, what God is in the context of the game, we're gonna find out as we keep going, but this would have been made a lot more clear. I feel like if it had been translated better, this would have been an easier thing to just like pick up on, especially yeah. considering Alpha and Omega is like the first thing you see, and then Alpha and Omega are attacking the ship. If that's made clear, it's like, oh, okay, there's a God connection thing here. So um, I, I don't think that that is necessarily like a gigantic spoiler for the game. I think it's key context to understand what's happening, and I think what's intended for you to pick up on as foreshadowing for the game. Would you guys agree with that, or would you guys think that that's a spoiler? I don't think so. I'd let you know the opening line is said by someone and actually matters and not just something cool to put before a video game. Right. So I, I think it does matter, and the hints are everywhere if you look for them. Yeah. Uh, often those Xenogears just trust you're going to remember a term like Raziel in 50 hours. Right. And I think it's interesting that the localization is simultaneously not quite there, but also a momentous achievement given what Richard Honeywood had to deal with, yeah. which as I understand was just basically an Excel file without context for a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to imagine it better, but it's also easy to imagine it being much worse. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. <laughs> Alpha and Omega. It seems as though... <laughs> It seems as though they have God on the ship. It just seems because they're saying the genome's restructuring, and then they show a picture of a fetus, and it, it's it's it seems to be that this fetus is God in in a very strange way. I don't know exactly how this works, but they have God, and God is a fetus or an embryo, and they are transporting it somewhere but things start to go haywire because you can't control god that was kind of the tower of babel situation they were trying to subdue god they were trying to become god right more or less now that's maybe an interesting idea for the theme of this game um but in doing so something happened and they brought upon themselves the wrath of god so omega one is invading the the system right is like getting in there so um, God has taken over everything. He's starting to use their weapons on themselves. Um, it says autopilot system Faust has been accessed. I don't know what that is. Autopilot system Deus has been accessed. 
and now, that- now, now, this is the way it's written. I actually copied this over. This is this is actually incorrect. I copied yeah. this over from GameFAQs. It's not Deus. It's Faust. Right. Autopilot system Faust has been accessed, and its phase-space logic is being rewritten. Now, this is another reference. I think you were probably going to go there. I'll let you do that if you're going to do it. Oh, I was just going to, yeah, I want to make it my life's mission to try to figure out how to get that removed from game facts or get that changed <laughs> yeah. because like it causes so it causes so much confusion because yeah. Yeah. uh i mean deus is a term that we can't really define yet because it hasn't been defined in the game yet but um it, it does cause people to make some 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 leaps there uh, also right. fake net is incorrect in that in that script which is another reason i would i would love to yes. figure out how to get somebody to edit it's, that, that script he, is like he, he wrote it he wrote it as fat tech for some reason i don't know Fay-tech. how you oh yeah I, fate tech fate i'm now i'm now reminded of we did a in one of our patreon episodes we did a, a complete breakdown spoiler breakdown of of this intro and after we finished the game and and kind of broke everything out and I looked up Fatech and I couldn't find anything on it. So, but yeah. I did find on like Ancestry.com, it was like an Irish surname that was in reference to uh, people being chauffeurs. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm. Uh, that leads me to believe that uh, it's just something somebody made up. So yeah. Um, anyway, but yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the autopilot system is called Faust, which I think. I think it's kind of funny and on the nose that the autopilot system is called Faust because yeah. the, the term Faustian is basically saying a reference to making a deal with the devil, right? Right. Yeah, the, the character is uh, like a German legend, uh, like, uh, like yes. a, kind of like a folklore of this, this history of Dr. Faustus who uh, makes a deal with the devil uh, you know, to receive kind of all the worldly, earthly pleasures in exchange for his soul. Um, you know, if you're interested in looking into that reference more, go Google it or something. But um, yeah, I don't so, think I don't think the the autopilot system Faust is ever referenced again in the game. Yeah, like, it's not. As a, as opposed to Alpha One, Omega One, and Exxon, and a couple of the other things, this is just there. Yeah, and I guess you can kind of read this um, as a piece of symbolism, symbolism to be that the autopilot system is sort of like it's sort of like given in to this this attacker, right? It's, it's sort of like um, submitted to it, yes. uh, as Faust did in the deal to the devil, right? So uh, Faust has, has allowed, has given its soul, so to speak, has allowed this foreign uh, attacker to come in and access the coordinate system. Um, so the autopilot system Faust uh, has been accessed and its phase space logic is being rewritten. You guys have anything on phased space logic? <laughs> or, I just think it sounds cool. <laughs> yeah, it does sound pretty sweet. <laughs> it's a good name for a podcast or a band or something, but other than that, I couldn't find yeah, any. That is a good it. name for a podcast. We need another <laughs> comprehensive JRPG podcast out there. Someone start it and call it Phased Space Logic. <laughs> that works. <pretty> good. <laughs> okay, so then we uh, we have the operator. Uh, ergo, ergo area is increasing. An internal plane is forming. Switch to f- uh, dis- uh, space displacement mode. Alpha-1 confirming transfer of coordinate codes. This, again, Alpha-1, it sounds like she's talking to Alpha-1, but it's yeah. Alpha-1's doing this. Alpha-1 alpha one is changing the coordinates of the ship. Yes, Alpha-1's changing on the coordinates of the ship. Then they, they, she, she reads out the input coordinates, which are NX128EZ061, the main planet. Now, um, I think that this probably should have been translated as the main star for those who are familiar with the way it's referenced in Perfect Works, they talk about the right. main star instead of the main planet. But um, yeah. we don't know what that is for now. Uh, we'll probably, re- well, for sure, we're going to, going to return to this scene 
later on in the analysis once we've had more gaps filled in our knowledge about what's going on and kind of look at this again and we'll, we'll understand what main planet means. But I, I, I did like the delivery from the operator. These two girls who do the, um, the voice actresses who, who voice the operators, they're the best voice actresses in, or best, best, they do the best voice acting in the game in my opinion. I yeah, agree. I agree. Um, and the way that her voice kind of breaks when she says the main planet, like really drives home like the severity of what's happening. It's like, holy yeah. crap, this is not good. <laughs> C-061, the main planet. The main Whatever. planet, like it's all falling apart. <laughs> Whatever is on the main planet, they don't want the ship to go back there. Mm. And they don't want this this attacker to direct them back. So the only thing that can really take away from a non-spoiler perspective is that the uh, the attacker wants the ship to go somewhere somewhere else and possibly somewhere where they came from because when you say the main planet you're thinking of a, a planet that is already sort of colonized or yeah habitable uh, right etc exactly so we'll fill that gap in later but uh this thing is going to the main planet it's trying to get there yep. so so the captain says damn so they're planning on attacking again it it should be it damn so it's planning on attacking the main yeah. planet right Good delivery of that line too. Damn, yeah. it's yeah. really good. Yeah, the captain. The captain's good too. Like basically, all the voice acting in this opening scene is excellent. Um, so then he tries to call the engine room to activate the emergency sealing system, but you see kind of the 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 phone just hanging there. Obviously, they're all dead yep. in the engine room. Um, and then he decides to evacuate the ship. See that all civilians and passengers are safely transported to the escape shuttles. I'll send a dispatch after evacuation is complete. I'm evacuating the ship. All of you evacuate now. Um, okay, so that's it for all the lines. Then basically the rest of the scene plays out. People are trying to evacuate. Um, you see like astronauts on the outside, I guess, doing repairs as this was going on. And it looks like they're holding lightsabers. Yeah, holding think, like a little lightsaber thing. <laughs> I think they're like the uh, you know the air traffic controller directional things. They're trying that's to a get good point. ships off there. Yeah, trying to like uh, direct people. Yeah, that's that, that's actually that's smart. That's maybe you were going to get to this, but the did you note what pops up on the screen as the captain is initiating yes, the yes, exactly. Sequence? So so once the the shuttles are shot down and he realizes no one's going to be able to get out, all these serpent like uh, kind of structures, I guess, are going to burst out from like yep. the hull of the ship, and they're and he's looking at them, and they're all just kind of out there, just like uh, and it's just like the whole thing has gone completely insane. And then the screen, uh, that kind of like the main screen gets taken over and it's just written over and over again, you shall be as gods, you shall be as gods, you shall be as gods. So go, I go ahead, back and go forth. ahead with what you were going to say about that. I, I, just, I just go, I was curious what your perspective is on this because you've done a lot of research on this stuff more recently than I have. Um, the you shall be as gods popping up on the screen. I, I go back and forth on whether or not I think this is a direct reference to something that is happening or it just is cool. Because we see this line, it's in Xenosaga, it's in Near Automata. Like, it's a cool line and you want to have it in your game if you can, if you can yeah, make it yeah. contextually appropriate, <laughs> I think. I don't know. I don't know why. I, I, if I'm in a game, I'd probably put it in there too. And uh, so, what do you think? Is this, is this somebody speaking to the captain or speaking to the inhabitants of the ship or is this just. A cool way of this uh, of this attacker threatening whoever is trying to stop it. Okay, here's what I'm going to do in answering and what I think is going on here. I'm going to first try to give like a non-spoiler answer to this, 
and then I'll mm-hmm. give a, a firm spoiler warning, and then we'll get into it because there's something I really want to talk about with you guys too because it's just sure. really interesting. Um, so, you know, we, I kind of laid that foundation of some of like, you know, Gnostic beliefs, like when we started this, right? And the recontextualization of the Garden of Eden in particular, where uh, it's not Satan saying, because the, the passage comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. And uh, Satan here, the serpent, is, is speaking to, uh, to Eve, I believe, and says, For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, in the Gnostic reinterpretation of this, Gnosis is what everyone should be seeking for. It's like the core of like, what Gnostics believe, this sort of like personal, spiritual, secret truth. And God, or the demiurge Yaldabaoth, had hidden that knowledge away. It had locked it away from Adam and Eve. And it was Jesus who came and offered knowledge to them, sent by the monad, right? So if we're looking at this from the Gnostic perspective, this is actually like a, an act of benevolence rather than like a temptation. It's, it's, it's uh, this figure, uh, in this case, um, Jesus, offering knowledge, you shall be as gods. Now, given what we know at this point, which is might be where I have to come to the end of trying to answer this without spoilers. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try, though. Whatever this thing is, Omega and Alpha, that are attacking the ship, right? This is obviously tied somehow to whatever God concept is in this game. Um, is speaking, I think, to the humans on the ship. And is saying, you shall be as gods. I interpret this as being that it does not see itself as doing something malicious or evil necessarily. Because here's another thing. This, this game is highly inspired by a science fiction novel called Childhood's End. Have you guys yes. read Childhood's End? Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to get into this way more later. Uh, it's a fascinating novel. I really like it. I'm a big fan of Arthur C. Clarke. I've read all of his novels. He's great. But... In Childhood's End, right, you have these kind of overseers or overlords who are like overseeing or trying to help humanity into their next step of evolution, right? And so they're kind of like over many, many decades, I can't remember exactly what the time scale is, I think it's more than 100 years <clears throat> from when they first arrive to when uh, the end of the book happens. They are kind of like trying to um, slowly or, or just kind of push humanity into the direction that will take them into this new step of evolution. Right. So the way that I see what Omega-1 is saying to the captain and to the people on the ship here is, you shall be as gods, I'm going to guide you into the next step of your evolution. That was kind of how I read that. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about that. You shall be gods is the promise from the serpent to Adam and Eve. This is important because it implies that the inhabitants of this ship have eaten, have partaken of the forbidden fruit, right? That they have, and this this makes sense with everything, that the masculine is working that which is unnatural by gestating an embryo, which is the sole property of the feminine. The masculine is not allowed to do that. Um, and they also, through the creation of this tower, this new Tower of Babel that they have made, this massive spaceship... They have, um, they're attempting to subdue God 
and they're attempting to become as gods, right? Meaning they have gained the knowledge of the gods, right? So they have partaken of some fruit somewhere that enabled them to actually subdue God, which is a, an astounding feat. So <laughs> congrats to them, I suppose. Uh, good work on doing that. That's that's tough. It didn't work out for you. I'm pretty sure everyone here dies. Uh, but they, they were able to do something that, you know, doesn't really make sense as a possibility. But... Um, the the knowledge that they have that enables them to do this kind of thing um, is kind of being thrown back in their faces. They're being mocked, right? They sought to become God. That was their sin. And that is why they were punished, right? Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily what the Adam and Eve story necessarily says or implies, uh, but I believe that is what this game is implying. This game is taking that from it, right? So the promise is you shall be as gods. Um, I take this as a mockery. However... There's something else that I want to throw out here. It's not often mentioned um, that one of the people that it is said that this game um, references is Eric Fromm. And Eric Fromm is, um, he was an, an important a German or pro, maybe he was Swiss um, philo- psycho philo- philosopher kind of type guy. You know, he, he did this kind of stuff. He, he wrote books about theoretical, you know, what if, what if God, kind of Nietzschean stuff, you know, um, for example, he wrote a book called You Shall Be As Gods, and that book, it came out in the the 60s, I think, and he, um, he theorizes in this book that religion exists to propel people to a certain place, and that it inevitably kind of, um, will, will fade away and disappear, as mankind becomes more and more and more like God, uh, and that at some point mankind is meant to and indeed destined to replace God or displace God. Um, and it seems as though he is saying that um, that the future of mankind would be atheism because mankind would become as God. And that that the belief in God, the structure of God in the world of humans, is such that it kind of subdues people. So you live under the thumb of God, right? And the only way to break out and to um, unleash your true potential uh, is to um, kill, kill God. This is in Eric Fromm's book, You Shall Be As Gods. This was a promise uh, made uh, to Adam and Eve, and they went ahead and ate of the forbidden fruit, and that eventually, through their descendants, they shall uh, live on, their DNA, I guess, shall live on as gods in the future, meaning you, you displace God, the men become men and women, humans become gods, uh, and there are scriptures within the Old Testament that he will reference in Psalms and elsewhere uh, that talk about the idea of theosis. Theosis meaning um, humans becoming as God or if not God himself or in some way. There are some traditions that say theosis is you are absorbed into the essence of God after death, something along those lines. There are other traditions that say you become gods yourselves and then there's billions of gods and it's a different kind of thing you know there are also some traditions that uh say that this is this is you you become like god in one respect in the sense that you now know good from evil but you 
only in that sense. You can never become as God in a more literal sense, I suppose. It's just, oh, in that one way, you're kind of like God, aren't you, huh? Uh, and so there are several different translations. There are several different ways of looking at this. Uh, but theosis is... Um, Eric Fromm argues that it was very, very directly taught amongst the Jews in the Old Testament. And um, so this doesn't necessarily have to only be referring to Genesis 3-5. It could honestly be referring to the title of that book, given that it is said that this game takes from the ideas of Eric Fromm. It, it, <laughs> from, right? Okay. So it takes his ideas and his ideas are part of this game. And here we have a a quote of scripture that is misquoted slightly because it says you instead of ye. But Eric Fromm wrote a book called You Shall Be As God. You, you, you. And sometimes the ye means like plural. Sometimes they'll say thou, uh, thee, thou. But ye typically is plural. I don't know um, if there's necessarily much to that. But either way, he's saying you shall be as gods. Uh, that could be a reference to that because what I understand about this game from that first podcast, from what I do know, the very little bit that has been spoiled for me, <clears throat> is that uh, displacing God is kind of a, a theme here. It's kind of a goal. It's what our character is going for um, in some regard. Uh, so I do believe this would be in reference to Eric Fromm's book as well, not just the scripture, although Eric Fromm's book is admittedly referencing the scripture too. So in a roundabout way, it is all still referencing Genesis 3-5, uh, but in a maybe a different way. I don't know if, if everybody here has heard that before, but that is that is one of the takeaways from this game, from this intro scene as I've seen it. I... I, I think that's a I think that's a good read, a really good read. I always wonder: Are, are we in the spoiler section yet? Um, let's just do it now. Spoilers. Okay. Uh, skip to this point, <laughs> this time code, if you want to totally avoid uh, spoilers of the game. We're gonna we're gonna dissect this a little bit uh, now. Okay, so, so go ahead. Okay, and for those listening to this audio only, check the description so that you'll have the time codes that you need to skip to. I know that I'm, I'm talking about putting that number on the screen and you're not going to see that. So check the description. The time codes will be there so you can skip over the spoilers if you want to do that. Yeah. So we've talked about the the, the Demiurge and yeah. the the attacker here is the Demiurge that's taking over the ship. Yeah. And um, the Demiurge, as we'll find out much, much later in the game, has kind of accidentally sucked up the true god into the into the Zohar, the wave right. existence into the Zohar. The monad um, of this world, yeah. Yes, and the wave existence, the true god, is has a active hand in this entire process. It's trying to that's true. Uh, kind of co-opt the Deus system in order to uh, execute its own scenarios. It's trying to create a a a representative of the contact. Uh, in order to guide somebody to eventually destroy the Zohar so that it can it can escape like that's all it's concerned about is escaping and so and so my kind of alternative read on this is that somehow like through the the alpha one through the catamony the 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 brain of the of the Deus system which is connected to the Zohar the wave existence is kind of of offering gnosis by saying like taking the role of the gnostic serpent by saying you shall be as gods uh to you know whoever will listen which that will end up being of course abel and all of the all of the incarnations of abel but um 
I think that that's a, another way you could look at it. But I, I think both I, are. Both I'm glad. No, I'm glad you brought this up because it actually connects to even more of what I kind of read from this. I feel like there's an element here. Man, how do I explain this? Where Omega One is acting in what it thinks is its own interest. Yes. But it is actually being influenced by the monad, <laughs> by yes. the wave existence. So the wave existence is actually trying to escape, right? It's trying to, it's, it's trapped within the Zohar and it's trying to get out. But it's almost like this subconscious level of, I don't want to use the word manipulation, that's not the right word. But what the, what Omega One or what the Demiurge, what Deus believes is its own free will or action or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. right? Because remember, in, in, in Gnostic teachings, the light that was in Yaldabaoth came from the monad or from Sophia originally, right? So like, there is like a remnant or an essence of light in it, but that comes from another source. So Deus, in what it thinks it's doing to like achieve its own ends, is actually being pushed forward by the monad. So I think that you're right. I think that this is, I think that this is the the demiurge or um, Deus Omega One saying what it's saying, and and there's a duel underneath that, a duel. <laughs> kind of meaning to you shall be as gods where it's actually the monad as well. Yeah. Like and, reassuring and, them it's going to be okay kind of a thing. And as as you'll discover as, as people will discover as they play the game the uh the influence of of the monad on the Deus system is is very slight. Like this like all these systems that are being created don't necessarily work the way the, the way they were intended to because of the the imperfections of of the systems and because ultimately these things create humanity and create free will so things mm-hmm. don't go the way these two systems planned and that's kind of why that's kind of why Xenogears is so cool because it it sets in motion a couple of systems but also introduces the idea of of humanity having free will to use those systems to 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 its own ends like what yeah. you'll what we'll find with many of the main villains and and many of the sort of antagonistic uh, institutions that you're going to come across uh, throughout the game. Yeah. The childhood's end comparison and parallels are really strong here because the message of benevolence is given by the overseers, given by that text on the screen, but it's not going to benefit anyone who's presently alive Correct. in the story. It's going yes. to be passed to future generations, and the present generation doesn't necessarily know that. Well, I guess the people on the ship know they're all about to die. But Yeah, that's actually, uh, that's actually a really, really good point, is that... Like, for, for the people in Childhood's End who, like, meet and interact with the overseers, it's not going to be so good for them. <laughs> but, yeah, like, yeah. through kind of the, the, the difficult transition, it's going to be much better for humanity moving on to its next stage of development. And in a similar fashion, like, everyone on this ship, like you're saying, is going to die a pretty horrible death. But, like where this is going is going to be good. It's going to be better. And I think yeah. that, that both Deus and uh, the wave existence feel that way. So, yeah. it, but, but for different reasons, right? And the, the parallels with the overseers are, is, is really interesting to me because Deus, the Deus system itself is going to have its own over, overseers, its own set of overseers, the, yeah. the, the, the Gazel Ministry, which you'll get to later. But... Right. Um, that's a, that's a connection I had not made until this point. It's really interesting. Yeah. 
So, okay, now we're coming out of spoiler mode or returning back <laughs> Hello again. Uh, to non-spoilers. Welcome back, those of you who have not beaten Xenogears before. Um, okay, so after this, the, the ship crash lands on a planet nearby, and we have a woman uh, with purple hair who emerges from the wreckage. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to hear you guys' take on, on what this means, the, the, sim the symbolism of it or, or what you think this represents or... Uh, how you guys saw this kind of before I, I move into what I think. I think it's really interesting that the the ship is, you, you do see a, a a cut of the ship exploding in the sky and like literally the, the, the Gnostic system is being created. Like there are elements descending from the heavens onto in, into the material world. Like the metaphor is really strong right there uh, until it cuts to the, to the woman on the beach, which um, I can't help, and I don't think this is a spoiler to say this. If it is, cut this out. But like, I, I can't help, but even the first time I played this, to get the the feeling that that creation is happening yes. right here. Yes. Uh, with, with the crash. Yes, exactly. I don't think it's a spoiler either. But yes, I read it the same way. I wasn't that smart. I just thought it was a sole survivor when I was fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> you could read it that way too, but like, I think. For whatever reason, like the the extremely unnatural long flowing hair gives it, it's a little context well, clue that this well, is not a normal person. And the fact that she's naked, right? So it's almost like a birth. Like yeah. she's emerging from the ruins of this ship. Oh, I mean, she's she's in adult form, but like it it's, it, it feels like a birth or like a new beginning as she yeah. sort of like emerges from this. Uh, onto this new planet as, like, the sun is rising or whatever. Yeah. And again, the game gives us something that we're not going to be able to interpret for another 40 hours. But um, I, I love the game because of that, because yes, of that reason. Yes. But uh, I think it's really great that they've just taken all those all those, those Gnostic ideas that that, uh, that Takahashi was so interested in and they just turned it into a, a sci-fi story. It's, it's, it's a really neat way of doing it, I think. Yeah. Whereas, like, in his later works, like in Xenoblade, it's more... I don't know, th those games feel more tied to the the spiritual or the religious concepts, where this is just all that stuff turned into science fiction. Yeah. So, okay, the way that I kind of read this on this particular playthrough of the game, like I did not know anything about Gnosticism last the first time I played it, right? <laughs> but having like looked up a lot of this stuff in the Apocryphal of John, um, I don't know if this was intended at all, but I just thought it was interesting, right? In the Apocryphal of John, it, it sort of talks about the Demiurge, or, or, or Yaldabaoth, having the ability, like being powerful enough to try to mimic the creation process, right? Like trying to do his best to, to, to copy what the Monad did when, when the Monad created the Aeons. Um, and the first Aeon was Barbalo, right? Barbalo was the first Aeon. And it's described as feminine and is like a mother figure. Of course, there's the androgyny, I've already mentioned that, where it's mother-father kind of thing, but a, a mother figure, uh, usually described in, in feminine form. So we have Omega-1 and Alpha-1 crash lands, the ship crash lands, and, and out from this crash comes a woman. And to me, this was maybe like a, a, an attempt of this demiurge to mimic like the monad's creation process, right? Where it created a, what would it would believe is its first Aeon Barbalo to act as like a, 
um, a mother figure and to like descend into this world which is below, right? So they, the way that they talk about like the, the material universe and like the, the spiritual universe where the monad resides, right, is the upper and the lower uh, kind of planes. So we've gone from the upper plane, which is where the prologue happens in the ship, to the lower plane, which is this planet. And now that we're on this planet, uh, we have a Barbalo type mother figure <laughs> emerging to like begin a new process, a new a new creation process on this new world. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know, like I because I had never read about Barbalo before. I felt like maybe this this could be. And again, I can't go back into diving into what we had talked about with spoilers, so I'll try to reference it without doing that. We know that. Okay, never mind. I just won't. I don't even try. Anyways, I felt it's, like it's tough. <laughs> I felt like this was like a, a, a almost like a mimicking process of of the demiurge to create an aeon in this uh, in this figure of this woman that emerges. Um, but then beyond that, we don't really have much context because it cuts away from that. So one thing I really wanted to say it was in my notes, but I just didn't get to it. I kind of skipped over it. Was that according to the Apocryphon of John, the material universe is kind of this combination of light and darkness, right? It's described not as being light or dark, but dim, you know, something like in between the two, because like Sophia's light, which came from the monad was obviously part of the essence of Yaldabaoth had that light in it. And so it was this sort of like mixture of light and darkness that is described in the Apocryphon of John as being dim. And I thought it was very interesting that as this woman emerges from the wreckage of the Eldridge on the planet, it's like right as the sun is rising. So it's, it's this very dim, uh, setting, you know, it's, it's not like really bright and it's not dark. It's in between the two. So like the planet that this a uh, woman is emerging into, is being birthed into, is a dim world, which uh, I thought was a really interesting, uh, possibly purposeful reference there. Um, the reason for it being this sort of like you know, daybreak, dawn, dim sort of lighting um, as she as she comes out of the wreckage. So that I thought was really interesting too. No, I have like four or five different thoughts about this. I don't know. I don't know who this woman could possibly be. But if I'm going to read into, you know, Jungian archetypes, for example. First off, well, Freudian stuff as well, because this woman has accentuated, like, pronounced feminine features. I think I'll put it that way. Um, now, there's like the three faces of Eve, right? You've got... The innocent, playful, freedom-loving woman. You have the the woman that is sexual, uh, primarily sexual in nature, and who um, presents themselves that way. That is, is typically the uh, the great love interest. The femme fatale would definitely fit under this category. Uh, then you have the motherly figure. Now, um, this woman. This is fascinating because this woman. She represents all three in, in a, a strange way. And I, I'm having trouble kind of wrapping my head around this. I'm curious to see which of these three she ends up being. Um, 
she is she exudes innocence it seems in this scene because she is she is stark naked and she doesn't seem like you see that look in her eyes and and there's a sense of like i don't know is it longing or sadness i can't tell she's not crying like she's just kind of there experiencing it's almost as if she was just born and that is interesting because that ship was gestating an embryo right now Is the did the embryo grow into this woman? Is my big question, and I my initial assumption was yes, absolutely, that embryo became this woman. But there are weirder. There's some strange things at work here that that caused me to kind of second guess this. Now, I would say just based on the fact that she survived the ship being destroyed is evidence enough to say that this is probably. The embryo probably immediately grew up once it was done being subdued by the ship and grew into the the god or goddess, it seems, um, and that it's a woman and that the the birth... Because the, the whole thing kind of feels like a birthplace. Let, let me explain this first real quick. This whole sequence here, this whole intro is a birth like archetype type situation here. You've got, you've got the phallic symbol, you've got the embryo gestation, you've got this turbulent birth it seems this turbulent escape from the womb which was in the masculine so and then you have a a naked human that is here and everything fades to white in the end and a fade to white often will represent a, a birth type situation uh there are a lot of games that do this uh where you'll have a birthing a birth related sequence at the very beginning of a game. There are, there are lots of this very common uh, where you'll go through a, a situation that resembles in some weird abstract symbolic way a birth and it typically ends in a fade to white or a, a as you enter into the next sequence like in an open world game for instance a, a bright a brightness you know you exit the dark into the bright right and so um, that is incredibly common. Now here we get that fade to white. We also get a, a, a naked person in the midst of wreckage. I mean, it seems and that we know was a womb of sorts uh, that had an embryo inside of it. So, like, it's a, it's a birthing sequence, and this is the product of that birth. And so I believe this woman would have to be the embryo, but that's weird because that means the embryo just grew up all of a sudden. And why was it an embryo? And the embryo doesn't really look necessarily like a typical human embryo. It looks a little bit different. So... I, I'm I'm a little confused by this, and also, the, and, and this is just me reading into Freudian Union, you know, the ideas from those individuals that are so present within this game, that that the god that was born of the embryo should have been a, a male. Now, this could be a subversion of expectations for me. This could be, oh, you thought that way? Well, look at it. It's a woman. God's a, God's a girl. It could be that, but they're playing so heavily off of established archetypes and, and tropes and religion and these ideas, philosophies of what God is, and, and it's always masculine. And um, in this case, we're presented with a goddess of sorts that's feminine, a, a mother-type figure. I would guess after all of this that she was the mother because of the way that she's portrayed. Uh, but um, it just doesn't really make sense. So either way, she seems to be a mother. She has the pronounced sexual features. She uh, is innocent, it seems, right here, as if she was just born. So she she um, embodies all the three faces of Eve. So I'm curious to see which one she resembles more as the game goes on, if we even see her again. I don't even know. Um, but my guess is that this will be a returning person and that this person had something to do with that ship crashing. 
I have one thing. We kind of missed the prologue sequence spends, I don't want to say a lot of time, but more than a few seconds of the captain taking out his little pocket locket thing and looking at his family. Yes. And the people in that may bear a resemblance to someone else in the story. But mm-hmm. I think we, we looked up that that's just a coincidence that that was the artist's right. discretion that it wasn't intended to actually be a reference to anything in the actual story. Right. Good. Yeah, I think they clarify that in the perfect works, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, which is confusing, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That is true. Uh, there is some speculation that um, uh, there's... Well, it's, it's his daughter... Um, in, uh, in the little locket, right, that he pulls out and he looks at before self-destructing the ship. Um, that bears a resemblance to another character we'll meet later, and uh, it, it's been clarified that that's not the case. It's totally coincidental. Okay, so we ended up going for much, much longer on this episode than I had originally intended. There was just so much to unpack in that opening cinematic sequence. And so... For now, in order for me to keep up with the weekly schedule, um, I'm going to have to cut the episode here. But uh, this is good for a couple of reasons. One, it's going to give us uh, a one-episode buffer, which is actually something I was talking about earlier in the podcast, needing to do, right? Uh, uh, Chris and Eric are like have a 20-episode buffer on Final Fantasy VIII already, which is how production should be run. You should not be rushing to get your next episode out, you know, a day before it's supposed to release. So this will give me a little bit of a buffer uh, for the future, which will be good. But um, also it's going to give me enough time to play through the next section uh, for the following episode. So um, next episode will be the remainder of what uh, we had talked about here with Lahan Village and Black Moon Forest. Um, But then for the episode after that, so two weeks from now, You'll want to play up until you um, rendezvous with the Yggdrasil. So you'll have Bart in your party by that time, and it's right when you uh, get to the Yggdrasil. That's that's where we'll be playing up to for the following episode after next week. So go ahead and feel free to play up to that point. Um, we will finish the rest of this uh, episode that I cut in half next week, and then the week after that we'll get into uh, the City of Dazzle, and then up to the Yggdrasil. Thank you very much for watching. Uh, I'm really looking forward to what people have to say in the comments section. This was a very dense episode. There was a lot going on, and it is a scene that we will revisit again down the line once we have some more um, context and dots that we can connect. So thanks, everybody, and we'll see you again very soon.